Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here. Before we get started with this new episode that we have for you today, I just wanted to give you a little update about things that are going on with me. If you follow our podcast regularly, you have noticed that there have been uh, the last three or four weeks that we have not had a new show. The reason for that is that you may recall, if you follow me on Instagram, that my wife had a very serious car accident back in May, which she has been off work for, and we've been seeing different doctors, and we come to a point of where they said that there wasn't really anything they could do to help her. Well, at a point, she began to where she could not work anymore, and we had to do something. So we went and saw a surgeon, and he said that the only way that he knew that could give any relief is for her to have a major back surgery. And so on August the 5th, my wife had major back surgery here at the hospital in Little Rock. She is doing fine. She's at home. But in that period of time, uh, I do believe while I was in the hospital with her, I contracted covid and I just want to tell you, COVID uh, is, is terrible. I have never, ever been sick to that extent. At one point, my oxygen levels were in the mid-80s, and I went to the hospital. And while in the hospital, there were people that were so sick that it was just, it was overwhelming for me. Already being sick, but seeing how some of these were progressing even before my eyes, it became very real and very scary to me. As I sat there and waited probably three to four hours before even being triaged, I got to the triaged nurse and she said, you know, your oxygen stats are low, but we don't have any beds and you're young. I think you'll be okay. We'll give you some oxygen. We'll give you some inhalers. We'll give you some medicine and go home. And if you get worse, come back. Well, I want to tell you that that was probably one of the most scary things I have ever heard in my life, to be sick enough to, yes, I needed to be in the hospital, but there were other people who were sicker than I that needed the bed. As I've said, COVID isn't anything that that is to be laughed at or to be taunted, it is very real, and and I don't ever remember being that sick. As the days progressed, uh, I felt worse, and I went back to the hospital and received a monoclonal antibody infusion, and <clears throat> that really began to help, and I began to feel better, but on the day that Jennifer and my son Luke, my wife Jennifer and my son Luke, were to leave quarantine because of me. They had to be tested, and my wife and Luke, my six-year-old son, tested positive for COVID. Now, thankfully, Luke, as you may remember, had open-heart surgery back in February. And thankfully, COVID did not affect him at all. He had no symptoms. As a matter of fact, he refused to believe that he had COVID, and he would sit in the living room watching Paw Patrol with two masks on saying, I'm not going to get coronavirus. And it was difficult for me to try to convince him that he already had it. But when he found out that he was going to have to miss the first week of school, he was okay with having coronavirus. Now, my wife, the only symptom that she ever had was she ran 103.6 fever for about three days. Now, she had just had back surgery. She was not to be taking any NSAIDs, anti-inflammatory medicines. And so her fever continued to stay that high for uh, a number of days until it just naturally came down by itself. COVID is very real. Uh, and I, I can't express that anymore. And and I, I'm not going to say that you need to get vaccinated or you should not get vaccinated. But what I can tell you is that we need to be listening to those who have studied their entire life 
about infectious disease. And while this COVID is new, it's not as COVID-19 is a new variant, if you will, but but COVID SARS has been around for a long time, and there's been a lot of study around that. And that's why they were able to get the vaccine so quickly. And so we need to take in consideration of things that are we healthy? Do we have underlying medical conditions? All of these things. And yes, there are some people who who are pictures of health that fall into that 99% that will be okay. But I want to tell you, while I am recovered, so I'm in that 99% that was okay, there were points and times that I didn't know if I was going to make it. And so that was that was very real and very scary to me. A couple of weeks ago, my mother called me about four in the morning, and and she doesn't ever call me at four in the morning. And, and come to find out, my dad had gotten up and, and fallen, and come to find out, Uh, He had a stroke. He was in the hospital there where they live for 11 days and finally got him here in Little Rock to a rehab. And he had a a major stroke. He has has no use of his right side. And so my mom is staying with me because she, if you remember, had COVID for 161 days, was in the hospital. And so she's staying with me because I didn't want her to stay by herself. And they live about two and a half hours from me. And so she's staying with me. I've got my dad in rehab. Uh, Jennifer is still off work, recovering from her back surgery. However, she is doing great, just very, very good. And so life just really got crazy for a little bit. Things uh, were very uncertain and and even now are are uncertain as to what tomorrow may, may bring. But in that, uh, I would be remiss to say that my mental health was unwavering because it, it wasn't. I had to make sure that I kept my weekly visit virtually with my therapist and that they checked in on me. And I did my part to keep them best informed as to what was going on. But there were times that, that I got depressed. There was one night I recall that I <clears throat> I just had a panic attack of I didn't want to die. I didn't want to I didn't want to leave my family that I've worked so hard to have. And it, it was just a, a, pan, a complete and total panic and I was already have trouble breathing and and you had that on top to everything else and it was a very, very difficult time. And so I, I said all that to say that that's why you haven't seen or heard much of me in the last month, but also to encourage you that whatever you may be going through today, you can get through today and tomorrow is a new day. We get to start all over tomorrow with a clean slate. And whatever it takes for you to get through today is what you need to do. Because tomorrow is a new day and a new beginning and could be the new beginning and new start of the rest of your life. Everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today, I have with me J.D. McCabe, who is the author of his memoir called The Third Gift. And I think I ran across you on Instagram at first, and or somebody had sent me a video, uh, and, and this just almost unlifelike uh, story of tragedy that happened mm-hmm. to you. Uh, and, and so I, I was really... Uh, enamored about that. But JD, thank you for, for being willing to come on the show today. Not at all. And I thank you. I thank you, Brian, for, you know, the opportunity. I thank you for sharing your platform with me and very much look forward to the conversation. Well, there's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot to cover. There is quite a bit. There's quite a bit to unpack for sure. Yeah. So, so where are you originally from? Originally from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And then through the course of work, moved down to Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky for five years. And then Spent 19 in, in the North Carolina area and then moved down just a little at the height of COVID, moved down to uh, the Charleston, South Carolina area. 
I love Charleston. I just yeah, I love a gorgeous, Charleston. Gorgeous place. Yeah. Yeah. So, at what point in there did you meet your wife, or or now ex-wife? Yeah, I met my ex-wife back in damn man, it was June of 1991. Met her playing on a slow pitch. I was playing in a male slow pitch recreational softball league. Nothing too competitive. Introduced to her by the third baseman. You know, we chatted a little bit after the game. We initially, you know, she gave, she gave me her number. We initially, uh, before texting and all that fun stuff, right? Yeah, initially, I didn't give her another thought. You know, uh, I had some some concerns uh, that she had shared with me that evening that she had been married once briefly. She was 22 at the time was married to a gentleman briefly for eight weeks, according to her, a gentleman who was 10 years her senior, who brought an 11 year old, his 11 year old daughter to the, to the marriage. So I, I didn't, I didn't pursue it any further until I ran into her in a, in a watering hole in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And uh, we reconnected there and then we, we started dating. Uh, so we dated for about a year and a half. And then we were married on September 11th of 1993. She was married prior. Yeah. Did she share with you before you you were married about the demise of that relationship yeah and that was something i probably well that that is something i should have dug into a lot deeper but uh her mother and her grandmother corroborated her story that she was looking for a father figure because at the time her father was you know allegedly estranged from her and she her story was a story that she would later paint about me 20 plus years later that I, you know he was controlling he was abusive he was very jealous you know she couldn't go to the mall she couldn't didn't have her own personal freedoms to live her life and so was married to him according to her for 8 weeks and never moved in with him so that's a very short marriage very short marriage and she she later had annulled whether or not that actually happened that's that that was the story and i think well, I know that, you know, her mother corroborating it, her grandmother corroborating it. I kind of I kind of let it go. But her relationship with her father would later come into play. And it's her relationship with her father that I think ultimately was her undoing. We were happily married for, you know, 17 years, two beautiful children living, you know, living a reasonably stable and normal, normal life. And then things began to unwind, uh, you know. Uh, and almost going into our 18th year of marriage. So, uh, and without our f- listeners having the 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 foreknowledge of how the demise of your marriage came about, was there anything within those 18 years that led you to believe that there could be something wrong within a mental health position that would lead you to believe that something like what happened could have happened? No. No, I mean, you know, for the first 17 years, I would say, no, there was nothing that real. Now, looking back now, of course, you you see things. But at the time, thing, I'm, I think my, my daughter, my daughter summarized it best when things started to fall apart. And I found her in her closet. She was 15 at the time. She was crying. And, you know, she just said, hey, daddy, what happened? You and mom are like teenagers in love. And at the time, I had no explanation for her. I had no answers. I didn't I didn't know what really was going on, to be quite frank. Yeah. So in really trying to open up the story here, kind of walk us through what happened. Yeah. So it was probably entering into the, like I said, the 17th, 18th year. I switched employers. I was home more. I was a what they call an individual contributor. I stepped stepped away from being a regional sales director and a, a second line leader. And I was at home more. The kids were younger and I wanted to, you know, I'd always been involved in their lives, but I wanted to be even more involved in their lives. And and I wanted to be able to be home um, more consistently during the week and on evenings. And her father, who she reconnected with, she was estranged from her father for 10 years. Her father, who she reconnected with at the nudging of our son at the time, he was five or six and, and they knew about grandpa. They never met grandpa. And she said, you know, my son said to, said to my wife at the time, um, you know, why don't you just call grandpa? And so she did. So she reconnected with her with her father probably in 2000, 2002. And how long of a period had gone by that they had, had been estranged? According to her, it was 10 years. Okay. Yeah, according to her, it was 10 years, which now I, I don't believe it. I believe she became estranged from her father. She had a very good relationship with her father. Till her first marriage fell apart. 
her father took in her now ex-husband. So her father, her I'm father sorry. Came I'm sorry. I didn't make that face. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I'm making that face too. I mean, but it, it really helps explain in my opinion, why things went off the rails. But when she separated from her first husband, never moved in with him, her father came out of the closet when she was two and announced that he was gay. Her parents divorced. I think that contributed to to what she ultimately experienced later in life, I believe, and others believe. It was, I guess, the, the feeling of abandonment that may perhaps contributed to her borderline personality disorder. And you may know better than I would, given your line of work. So when I had the same, made the same face that you just did, that what, what do you mean? Why, why would your father take in your ex-husband? We were dating at the time. And her comment back to me was, well, you know, he's gay. So which she informed me of. So he was attracted. He was attracted to my now ex-husband. I, again, I just kind of brushed that under the rug, either further, further cementing the story that she was building, that her father was an SOB and he was a deadbeat dad. When in fact, she actually had a very good relationship with him until her marriage fell apart. And then in 2007, he had a massive heart attack and she had to make the decision to terminate his life. She had to take him off a ventilator. And then a couple of years later, his life partner of 23 also died at a relatively young age. So I think the two deaths of those gentlemen really contributed to pushing her over the edge. And I'm a firm believer that guilt is a very toxic emotion, and she struggled to process that. And I would later discover that about that time, 2009, 2010, that she began uh, her abuse of hidden prescription drugs. I had no knowledge of that. Thus, the title of the book, The Third Gift, you know, the first two gifts are my kids. The third gift, which we can talk about here shortly, opened my eyes to so much deception, betrayal, and provided me with a sense of um, sense of peace, who I was as a man and as I was as, as a father. Yeah. Well, well, my initial thought was the third gift was the third baseman that gave you this, <laughs> this girl's number. You know what? That's beautiful. No one's ever said that to me, but that's very funny. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> so I need to track him down and thank him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Send him a bill. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's funny. Okay, so backing up, did the fa- did her biological father take her then ex-husband in in a romantic relationship? No. Okay. No. He had a life partner and I once everything came off, once everything started falling apart, once I was separated, I really researched everything and I looked at the county records where they resided in Florida and did validate in that year this gentleman lived with him and his life partner and there was another woman in the house. I don't know who the woman was, it probably maybe his new love interest. Um, but there were four people living in that home. So I validated that he lived there for at least a year, if not two. So I confirmed the fact that her father took in her ex-husband. Yeah. Okay. So then about the time that her, her father died and then her, her father's partner died was when some of this activity, uh, started coming to fruition. Yes. Now she, she started to see a therapist, which I understood. I'm like, you need to deal with the traumatic incident of having to, you know, take your father off of life support. And so I supported it. Well, she might've seen it. I would later discover she only saw this therapist a handful of times. And I think it, I th- I'm speculating on my part, but I believe this therapist who was a psychiatric nurse practitioner became wise to her and wouldn't fulfill the prescription requests that she was making. She came home from seeing this therapist and, and I was working from home. If I wasn't traveling, I was working from my office and she began quite angrily demanding to see my emails, my phone, that she should have access to my personal emails and my phone. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you know, my therapist, based on everything I've told her, believes that, believes that you're cheating on me. And I'm, I mean, completely came out of the blue. I never had a passcode on my phone. She could get in and look at it anytime. That should have been a red flag to me. I should have said, well, let me see your emails and let me see your phone. But I didn't. And yeah, you know, so I was an open book with her and she had my email, she had my username and password for my personal email and had access to it. Um, She didn't find anything. I don't even know if she looked, she never took my phone to look, but she suddenly did this probably every three, four months for a couple of years off and on. And I offered, I said, I'd be happy to go meet with your therapist. I'd be happy to address whatever you're talking about. Well, 
she would later lie to me and tell me that, well, that therapist is no longer practicing. She's decided to stay at home with her kids. And, and I don't think that was, I don't think that was true. I think this individual got wise to her prescription requests and refused to see her anymore, quite frankly. So, so she would have a level of paranoia that just uprooted without any calls or without any speculation. She just. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there was nothing I did. The only comment she would make to me, well, she would make this guy. She said, now that you're home more and you're not traveling as much, I'm seeing a lot more of your sneaky behaviors. And I'm like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? She can never provide specifics. Brian, it was a beginning for her, the classic gaslighting, classic projection, because I would later discover that everything she was accusing me of doing, she was actually doing. And, and that's typically how it works. Uh, yeah. in, in any situation. It is interesting, though, that, that she would make the statement now that you're home more, because the occurrence of divorce in older married couples tends to happen after retirement, uh, when they do all of a sudden have to be together 24-7. Do you think that there may have been something, well, let me back up. Was she working a job uh, during this time? Well, when we first got married, she worked uh, without kids. She worked part-time. That was her, that was what she wanted. And I supported whatever she wanted to do. Um, throughout our marriage, because we had two young children, she had built a very successful pet sitting business. And that started to wane towards 2009, 2010. She started having health problems. And I use health in quotation because I would later discover what really contributed to all of her health issues. You know, to kind of fast forward a little bit, once we figured everything out, they believed that she was never diagnosed by, um, by anybody because she would never go see anybody. But, you know, once we separated and ultimately divorced, they believed that she had, you know, factitious disorder, previously called Munchausen's, as well as, you know, borderline personality disorder, which was only made worse and exacerbated by her hidden prescription drug addiction. And what prescription drugs did she use? Beginning in 2001, I went with her to an esteemed medical center, academic med center, North Carolina, she was complaining of having something along the lines of autoimmune type symptoms. I was there with her by her side when she was evaluated and the rheumatologist at the time who had zero bedside manner essentially told her, you don't have an autoimmune disease, you have a type A personality and this is all in your head. I kind of dismissed what he said because of the fact that he was quite rude. She would later go on somewhere, and I don't know where, and she would begin to believe that she had an autoimmune disease. I share that to say I was aware of some of the medications she was taking for her autoimmune disease, which we would later discover, in fact, she did not have one. She was taking 4,800 milligrams of Lamictal, or not Lamictal, excuse me, Neurontin, uh, Gabapentin. She was taking Plaquenil. These were just a few of the medications that I was aware of that she was taking for autoimmune disease. What I discovered after the third gift was revealed was that she had an addiction to Adderall. Adderall, Adderall XR, Ritalin LA. She was taking 500 milligrams of Lamictal a day. She was taking Clonazepam, three milligrams a day. All sorts of medications that I had no idea that she was taking but it provided me tremendous clarity on some of the medical problems that she was having. You know, she was having significant cardiac issues, hypotension, she was evaluated and I was there by her side, evaluated with every means of cardiac diagnostic tests, cardiac catheterization, by no means a benign procedure. And all they could find, find was that she had a hard time maintaining volume. And as you know, with amphetamines and certainly three different formulations, it causes, can cause dehydration. Yeah. Never once did she mention to the cardiologists that, oh, by the way, I take three different formulations of Adderall mm. or amphetamines. Never mentioned it at all. She enjoyed, as I look back on it now, she enjoyed the journey of being sick. Mm -hmm. And her mother, before she turned on me at one point in time, said to me, does she want something to be wrong with her? We saw specialist after specialist after specialist, and nobody could figure out really what was going on with her. So... And this was in a time, I'm guessing, here on your timeline would be late 90s, early 2000s. So we really weren't into the war on drugs, if you will, to where there was a central registry where we could see who was prescribing what and what pharmacies you were getting medications from. So there wasn't any type of accountability or, or stop there that, that would say, hey, 
this is what we have going on, as opposed to now if you were taking Adderall and clazepam and, and Ritalin and all of that, and you went to the ER, it's going to just pop up and show those things. Uh, you would think, but I'm, I'm in the medical pharmaceutical field, and I, I think the surveillance is still lacking. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll add, and again, another discovery, is that she used our kids for two years in 2011 and 2012 to supplement her amphetamine prescriptions to the tune of 600 days worth across both of those kids. Oh, wow. I mapped it all out once I started digging into her medical claims and pharmacy claims. I had full legal access to it because of the fact that I was a primary cardholder for the insurance plan. But you go from one institution to another institution and there's no, really, they don't have a good record of your prescriptions or what you're taking. Something called medication reconciliation and that all the hospitals still struggle with that. Yeah. And that's one of the problems I think we still have in in healthcare. Not only do we have a, a problem with accessibility, you know, here, I don't know how it is in South Carolina, but I can say here in Arkansas, if you were referred to a therapist or a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you're looking at six to eight weeks just to get an appointment. To me, that's unacceptable. You know, if you're discharged after a 72-hour hold of having suicidal thoughts or ideologies, you need to be seeing somebody fairly quickly, you know, not yeah. not six to eight weeks. But then, you know, insurance companies limit how often you can see, who you can see. And so do you think that had there been more accessibility to healthcare at that point in time, that maybe you could have intervened in a way that that could have stopped some of the things that did happen? Uh, I, would, I would say no, because I didn't know what I didn't know. But, but I would say, again, being in the field for 30 plus years, I know that the federal government has spent a trillion dollars on something called the Office for National Coordination of Healthcare IT, where they tried to get a unified system that if you go to Hospital X and you go to Hospital Y, both of them have access to your records, mm-hmm. can see everything that's been done to you. That still is not fixed. I mean, the only thing I would applaud about a single payer system, you know, you go to England or you go to Canada, as you go to Western Canada or Eastern Canada, they all have access to your records. You go to Scotland and you're in London, they can see what's been done to you in Scotland. They would have seen what has been, what tests have been run. They may have seen what's been, been prescribed for her, but she was able to navigate our broken medical care system in the U.S. by bouncing from doc to doc self-reporting on what she had. She could go and tell them, look, I have an autoimmune disease. As a result, I get brain fog, I'm tired. This is where she found this psychiatrist that was willing to write her whatever she wanted. And and all of this was validated when we moved forward with our four-day alimony trial and we subpoenaed all of her medical records. This is where I uncovered even more of her secrets. And her psychiatrist testified at our trial, and my attorney did a great job of really laying out her own medical records saying she recommended that medication to you. Mm-hmm. She recommended that medication to you. So she wrote her whatever she wanted based on what she believed was her past history that she told her. My ex-wife told her, yeah, well, my previous therapist or whatever wrote this for me, and I've been on it for years. She took that at face value, mm-hmm. which is negligence in my mind. Which is, would be common in in mental health care. So as in your line of work, the question I was going to ask you was, you have a patient that comes in to see you, right? You don't have access to whoever's previously seen them unless they report it to you or share it with you. Right. I have no access unless they bring it to me. Now, of course, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't prescribe medication. I don't manage medication, anything of that nature, but you know, what they may have shared with another therapist, I may have absolutely no no idea, which may be the key to start treatment in one area. You know, when it, when it comes to mental health diagnosis, people get so up in arms because they'll be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And then six, eight months later, oh, it's not general anxiety disorder anymore. It's a major depressive disorder. Well, the first doctor didn't know what he was talking about. And now this doctor, when the only thing that changed was the time period, which then changed the diagnosis. And so if, if you were to come in and say, hey, 
I, I have a generalized anxiety disorder, which I think I think we could honestly say probably 70% of Americans do, then we would have no reason to doubt that. One thing that I do that doesn't always work, it doesn't always help uh, because there has to be consent from the patient. But I always encourage on the initial consultation that a family member or a close friend be there during that consultation. That way, if something is left out, if there's something not known, then that person can kind of chime in and and fill in the gaps. Because, you know, with trauma, it's not that we purposely leave things out sometimes. It's that our brain really has packed it away because it is trauma. Now, in the, in the case of your now ex-wife and her medical condition, I believe it, it was an issue of where there was an addiction and she knew that if she told something else, she was no longer going to get this drug. But with that drug, she was trying to treat another mental health condition that was, was not diagnosed, evidently. Yeah, the interesting thing, too, so uh, which we haven't talked about it, but I, I spent nine days in psychiatric lockup. Mm-hmm. So the irony of the whole story is, you know, when the marriage started to fall apart, the accusations began. I mean, I isolated myself, walled myself off. I come from a large family. I've got five brothers and three sisters, a nice network of friends, a nice network of professional colleagues. This is one thing I would tell you, you know, tell your listeners is please, if you're going through something difficult, don't isolate yourself. Mm-hmm. Find a friend, a confidant, whether it's a religious personnel, a deacon, somebody to lean on. I walled myself off. And that made it much easier for her to continue to gaslight me and continue to turn up the heat. And then her mom got involved. And then on a beach trip in June of 2014, out of the blue, her mother threatened to kill me and suggested I was addicted to porn and I was addicted to drugs. Two months later, I would end up in a psychiatric facility. There's more to it than that, but it's, it's all, my journey's all laid out in the book. You know, I'd, I'd end up in front of a psychiatrist in the fall of 2014 and in less than 30 minutes. She filled, she went with, was kind enough to go with, but she filled out her bipolar two questionnaire. I filled out mine and I was diagnosed with bipolar two. With time, the psychiatrist started to see his comment to me when I was released after a year released from his care. I stayed in his care because I had separated at that point. And under legal advisement, I was told, continue to see your psychiatrist, continue to take your little medication, which was just 25 milligrams of Lamictal was nothing. Ultimately, he got to the point where he's like, yeah, I finally see your your wife's paranoia, your ex soon ex-wife's paranoia and her delusions. And I thought you had, you know, a off the spectrum form of bipolar, which included irritation and agitation. My thought at the time was, you, you think I'm being gaslit every other day, but okay. My journey, which is laid out in the book, I had a journey through the mental health care system the broken medical care system, and then ultimately the legal system. Right. And and it's often that complex PTSD is actually diagnosed as bipolar. And, and really? really? Okay. Yeah, uh, it's very common. The, the thing about that, uh, the question I wanted to ask was the psych admittance, was that of your own doing or were, was there a forcible court entry? Yeah, I was involuntarily committed, not by the psychiatrist. I saw the psychiatrist six days. He had no knowledge of the involuntary commitment. I saw him six days prior to being involuntarily committed. I was involuntarily committed by my family practitioner after a pretty hellacious weekend. It was a family practitioner that I started to see in the spring of 2014. He had been our family doc for years. But in the spring of 2014, Brian, I started working out and I started losing a lot of weight rapidly. I lost 35 pounds in less than four to six weeks. And then it was 40, 45, 50, 55. I would later discover that my ex-wife was poisoning me with arsenic. So that started in the spring of 2014. My involuntary commitment occurred in the fall. and But I was involuntarily committed, went to the family practitioner for a follow-up because my white blood cell counts were elevated, liver enzymes were elevated. Another enzyme called creatinine phosphokinase was significantly elevated. They couldn't figure out what was going on with me, and the weight continued to pour off. After a hellacious weekend, I was a broken man. There was some talk about separation. You know, my wife at the time kind of chimed in about all the events of the weekend, and 
his question to me with his back turned to me was, if you lose your family, what will you do? And I said, I don't know what I will do. There was no suicidal ideation. I simply said, I don't know what I will do. And he said to me, well, if you don't go to a particular psychiatric facility, I'll have you involuntarily committed. Hmm. Would later discover, again, this is why the third gift is so such a perfect title. I would later discover once we subpoenaed my medical records, she was writing letters behind my back to my psychiatrist and to my family practitioner hmm. to further set me up. Which once again isn't uncommon for is that right? For that to yeah. You've seen have you seen that? Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah. But the difference the difference is in in my practice would be when I get these letters, I'm going to address them with the client immediately after I receive that letter. I mean, it's not going to be, okay, I've got this in the back of my mind. How can I use this as ammunition to get them to admit to this? It's going to be a guide to to kind of work through whatever may be going on. But certainly uh, in a in a narcissistic mindset uh, of an individual, which which is what I think you're dealing with here, a sociopath, they're going to do anything they can to make you feel like you are the, for lack of a better word, that you're the crazy one, that you uh, are the one to blame for everything. And then once again, on top of that, if she truly did have a, a diagnosis of uh, Munchausers or she is trying to show or to make it appear that she really does have these issues. Um, she's taking these drugs that are causing her uh, hypertension, um, you know, that lead to other uh, medical exams. And, and as you said, I think heart catheterization and other things, which is is classic presentation of of some of those issues of it's not about everybody else. It's about, I need the attention on me. So whatever I need to do to get that attention is what I'm going to do. That bears asking the question, what took place that pushed her to the point to say, okay, I've got to eliminate JD. She was allegedly always about family, right? And I think the thought of a divorce or the thought of coming to me and saying, I'm just not happy. This is not the life that I want to live anymore. It was how do I save face? First of all, not only blame everything on him. I mean, her story was perfect in that. I spent nine days in a psychiatric facility. I had been misdiagnosed with bipolar. So she had that card in her back pocket to play with family and friends. She just simply wanted out. She wanted out and she wanted it all. I don't know what, what went wrong with the wiring other than the fact that all of these, as you know, these are powerful medications that she's taking. And I think it completely altered her brain chemistry with, with, without a doubt. Sure. Her story was damn near perfect without the revelation of the third gift. And we can talk about what that is. It but. does also then lend to the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder within yes. that abandonment to to do something so drastic as to eliminate a person. So it's abandonment on her terms yes. and not on, on your terms. And I would assume that even working through the divorce, it was a struggle that she wanted it her way. So you are sick. Evidently, you're losing pounds, weight's just pouring off of you. You're going to the doctor. You don't know what's going on. At what point in time did you come to the realization that I'm being poisoned? My, my sister, so after I got out of the psychiatric facility, uh, I stayed in the marriage another seven, eight months. It was a classic example of, I hate you, don't leave me, right? She'd pull me back in and she would continue the abuse. And I was just doing whatever I could to hold on to the family unit. Once we had separated, my sister-in-law, who is a doctorate in nursing, said, I believe she's been poisoning you. And I dismissed it at first. Then I had a blood test done for heavy metals poisoning, and it showed nothing. But later learned that blood tests will only pick up acute exposure, not chronic. And then it wasn't until about a year after we'd separated we started down the legal path. I had to defend myself against domestic violence charges. We had all sorts of legal stuff going on. I had to maintain my sanity to keep my job, first of all. And it was in the right before our alimony trial, about two or three months before our alimony trial, I finally got, I put my health on the back burner because I had other issues that I was dealing with legally. Got to a liver specialist, laid out for him everything that was going on in the marriage. I was again retested for hep C, hep B, and I told him I had a 
blood test done. And he said, no, the blood test is not going to pick it up. He said, we need to do a pot. We need to do a hair and nail test. Mm -hmm. And it was a positive hair and nail test that confirmed the arsenic exposure. And I believe she was putting it into my protein powder. Again, speculation, because by the time we were close to our alimony trial, we would later discover, even though she was under court order, she restored her phone to factory settings or wiped her phone. And she essentially cleaned out four or five computers. So when they turned over whatever evidence they had, all I received from her was 14 emails. So their story going into the trial was that she's too sick to work. She may never be able to work again or work full time. He's going to need to pay her alimony, you know, until she gets to retirement age. In North Carolina, amongst other states, probably if there's proof of infidelity, there is no alimony. So that's why I continued down the path because the third gift, which ultimately would set me free, was revealed by her at our first mediation in July of 2015, um, after they made their first offer, the attorney who was going between two rooms said, oh, by the way, your soon-to-be ex-wife wanted me to let you know that you gave her herpes. So it was the herpes 2 accusation, which is the third gift uh, that set me free. It was God's way of smacking me across the face to say, son, your marriage is over. Mm -hmm. And it was that gift that forced me to take a look at what I had through our insurance company's website. And Brian, I, I had no idea that I had access to all her pharmacy claims, medical claims. I had access to five years of data that I spent hours and hours and hours building spreadsheets and cross-referencing and trying to piece the puzzle together. And that's where I discovered her hidden prescription drug addiction. That's where I discovered her using the kids. And I also discovered it wasn't only herpes that she had, but she pretty much had every STD going back the last five or six years of our marriage, hmm. which again, others have told me comes along with borderline personality disorder, the promiscuity, the impulsive behavior. You add in all sorts of psychiatric medications to that and you have an explosive combination. Yeah, absolutely. So at the, at the moment here that, that you come to the realization that, hey, my wife's trying to kill me, and then you come to the realization of all of this is going on. Did you ever at any point in time say, it's my fault? So for a while, and this is kind of what, when I isolated myself, beat me down, I started thinking, okay, maybe we never had trust in the marriage because I was not always forthright and honest with her. You know, and she would also claim that I had anger issues and mood issues. And I started thinking with everything going on with me physically, I started thinking, Maybe I got a brain tumor. Maybe I got something going on physically that's causing me to change the way they see me, even though I didn't see it. But I started to believe it. I started to take on a persona. And I've said before, uh, and I catch a lot of flack for this, but I'll stand by my opinion, is that I don't personally think that somebody with a true diagnosis of borderline personality disorder can have a successful relationship. Because there is no, it's not that they need trust or have trust. It's they don't know how to have trust. I absolutely agree with that. It, it's a, it's an emotion that they aren't even able to grasp. And so at any point of what we would see as mistrust, it is an explosive revelation to them that, you know what? I was right. I cannot trust this person. And so those people who do have successful relationships with those who have borderline personality disorder, um, I would tend to think that they may have been misdiagnosed, which once again, uh, BPD is, is sometimes misdiagnosed as uh, PTSD or even bipolar. Mm -hmm. And the problem is... That, Here's here's where the big problem is, okay? So I have somebody come in my client, uh, a client come in my office, and I'm asking them all of these symptoms and things that they may have. Well, they may be impulsive, but they don't see that as impulsivity. They may be uh, promiscuous, but they don't see that as promiscuity. They may have anxiety, but they don't see that as anxiety because they've always had it. And so what what happens is because we don't, we aren't able to know for sure what kind of symptoms are taking place that there may be an inappropriate diagnosis given. And so the question is, is how do we 
make sure that that doesn't happen. And while I, I applaud HIPAA, I applaud HIPAA, HIPAA has, has uh, restrained so many things that could be very helpful in, in a clinical healthcare setting. You know, even, even as my mother, which my listeners know, uh, my mother had COVID for, she was in the hospital for 161 days. Well, my, my father is disabled. And so I was left with the task to make sure she was getting appropriate care. Well, due to HIPAA, they did not have to tell me anything, even though I was her child, her name is on my birth certificate. And so I ended up through a court order, getting power of attorney and that, that sort of thing, which, which solved that. But how many people would know to do that? How many people are going to take that initiative? I'm not trying to pat myself on the back by any means, but, but that is where there's this big brokenness in our healthcare system. And even more so in mental health is because there are these roadblocks that we can't prove this. We can't make this person tell us what's actually going on. That makes it very difficult for us to give an appropriate diagnosis. Now, over over a time of clinical presentation, uh, we do kind of pick up on those things. Um, but it sounds like to me that your wife never kept a regular therapist. She landed on a new therapist at the time that I was involuntarily committed two or three or four days before I was involuntarily committed. And that further only fed her story. It was her therapist, and I don't mind saying she was extremely incompetent, her therapist that would later testify twice against me. She would testify at our domestic violence trial about me once I was out of the house, that I'd drive up and down the driveway, that I'm hacking her out. She bought everything that my ex-wife said. Every delusion, every paranoid thought, she bought it without ever seeing me. I met this woman once when I, probably a week after I got out of the psychiatric hospital, I forget what prompted us to go see her together, but she would later spin that, that I forced my way into her office, which I did not do. My wife at the time set up the appointment and broke my heart because of the fact that, again, here you have a therapist that she saw 64 times, ultimately, over the course of probably a year and a half, saw her 64 times, yet she never picked up or never questioned what was going on with her. She never questioned whether or not her paranoia or delusions were real, that I was putting cameras in doorbells, that I was hiding in crawl spaces. I mean, it's like, at what point do you go, hmm, this therapist never talked to her psychiatrist, never, who was prescribing all these medications for her, never had a conversation with her. Which is another thing about HIPAA. Had she given permission for that, it would have happen. She should have asked for permission, right? My therapist, once once the once every once I was separated and I found a really good therapist as well, she's like, look, I want you to sign a release so I can talk to your psychiatrist, who I again I only saw him for about a year. But yeah, she talked to him to see what he was seeing with me. Right. She did her job correctly. Yeah, the good ones will. Yeah, which is it's it breaks my heart because again, I did everything I could to get her help even after I separated. I called the insurance company, Brian. I called our pharmacy benefit management organization to tell them, look, first of all, you're spending a truckload. You spent a truckload of money on cardiac exams when she's taking three different formulations of an amphetamine. And they're like, we can't discuss that with you, sir, because of HIPAA. I said, HIPAA, I'm looking at the claims right here. And they're like, there's nothing we can do. Insurance company said the same thing. I'm like, I mean, the apathy stunned me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like I said, I applaud the work of HIPAA. Uh, but at the same time, it, it put a lot of restrictions that could help. So the third gift was this STI of herpes. Yes. Which, which ultimately then freed you from any cause of alimony or any fault. Well, I'm smiling about that, but I, I wish. So that's, okay. all laid, that's all laid out in the book. We so you do getting, pay alimony? I do. I've got four years left to go. Okay. So we got to talk about that. How did that work? I had a very biased judge in spite of the fact that we had, we secured the services of a national STD expert. This gentleman was absolutely an expert. He was an infectious disease doc without saying too much about him to give away his identity. He's, he's absolutely a national STD expert. He testified on our behalf as to what he saw and her own OBGYN 
testified on what he saw because he's the one that diagnosed her with with herpes too. But the judge somehow ignored the fact that she destroyed her phone. Okay, so we filed what they call a motion in limine, a pre-trial hearing, because we wanted a negative inference from the the judge to say, look, she destroyed her phone. Right. Exfoliation of evidence. Right. She was exfoliation. She was under court order yet. So the judge's ruling on that was simply, well, could have been months and months of communication on there about her ability to work, discussions with a male colleague. It's like, no, she didn't work. So there would be no male colleagues. She kind of minimized that. I think the judge recognized how troubled she was. I really do. Based on her testimony from the stand, based on her demeanor, And I think she just said, I'm going to help her out. She essentially found in her ruling that, yes, my ex-wife has HSV2 or herpes simplex virus 2. Her ruling for me was, yes, he tested negative, eh, but it's still possible that he may have antibodies. Mm. I then filed a Rule 59 motion, which again is laid out. And I went and had two other tests done. I had a test done at the University of Washington, which is the gold standard used in clinical trials. I went and had another blood test done. This was, you know, 16 months after my last possible exposure. And the gold standard for herpes is it's a blood test, okay? Mm -hmm. If you've been exposed, you'll have antibodies, a la COVID, and they'll be able to pick that up. Well, I've had three negative tests. The Rule 59 motion, we waited 13 months for that to be heard. We waited for that for 45 minutes of a pissed off judge that simply didn't want to hear the new evidence. So she upheld the law when it served her, meaning she's like, well, you could have had these other tests done prior to the trial. So at the Rule 59 motion, the judge is like, eh, perhaps, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether or not this occurred after the marriage. If I change my order, I may change a few words, but you're still going to have to pay alimony. The blessing I found in that is that they asked for 17 years of alimony and they asked for, for me to pay her attorney's fees. They awarded her nine years of alimony. So I've got a little over four years to go. And in my mind, to be honest with you, as a man of faith, I look at it and go, the good Lord recognized that mentally she's gone. She may never work. A, she's never going to work a professional job for sure. And I, I have had no contact with her for three years, but maybe just the Lord's way of saying, look, you're going to help her out. So my question, uh, even as a as a man of faith, but as a former police officer for six years, is why is she not in prison for poisoning you? There was no evidence to directly link it to her. Gotcha. Again, she destroyed her phone. The computers were destroyed. And again, I didn't I didn't figure all of the arsenic stuff out until a year after I was out of the house because I put my health on the back burner because I was dealing with started in October of fifteen having to defend myself against trumped up domestic violence charges. Again, her delusions and paranoia were off the hook. Hmm. And she used to mock me with the protein, like when I was still in the house, she'd say, you're putting something in your protein powder. I know you are. She'd pull it out of the cupboard, want to read the ingredients. I'm like, it's 100% whey protein. It's the same thing our son, who thank God didn't live in the house, was away at college. Same thing he's taken for years. I'm not putting anything in my protein more of her abuse coming my way. Absolutely. So where are you in your mental health journey now on the other side of this? Could you could you notice or or tell a difference now that your book has been published, that there was some liberty and some closure that you received in publishing? Yeah, there absolutely was. There was. So I think you mentioned it early in our conversation that you know, the, the brain has a way of boxing up trauma, right? So I had boxed up a lot of it. That was the, one of the, so it was cathartic, but I had to reopen all those boxes to write it. I had established a diary when I stayed in the home, stayed in the marriage, whether it was right or wrong. And again, I'm glad I did, because had I not, the third gift may never have been contracted. I mean, the good Lord put me on the right side of what ifs. So I had to open those boxes. So when the book was released, Brian, I did end up going back into therapy for a short period of time because I was experiencing some, you know, some post-traumatic stress, but it's centered around the young kids that I spent nine days with in a psychiatric facility. Mm-hmm. Young kids that were indeed suicidal, young kids that made valid attempts to take their life. My first roommate, 33 years old, tried to kill himself with cough syrup. It, it was those guys in my dreams showing up on my front porch with guns to their head, and I couldn't do anything about it because these were young kids that were like, I don't know why I checked myself in here, I'm not getting any help and they're sending me home tomorrow. And my heart just broke for them. Mm -hmm. That was some of the issues that I had to work through was 
I had to open up all the boxes again. And there was so much that I forgot that she had actually done to me. <laughs> and, and funny, the arsenic has gotten all the, has received all the attention on TikTok and Instagram and wherever. I almost left it out of the book because it was just that inconsequential. By the time I discovered that, I had been in a psychiatric facility. I had dealt with all this other stuff. It was kind of, eh, oh, well. People said she was poisoning me. Here it is. Mm. And it didn't, didn't phase me. It really didn't phase me. Do you, would you say it didn't phase you or would you say it didn't surprise you? Didn't surprise me. That's, mm. a, that's a better word. Yeah. Didn't surprise me. Didn't shock me. Didn't surprise me. And I kind of like, eh, let's move on. Yeah. You know, we're preparing for, we're preparing for depositions. We're preparing for, you know, an alimony trial here in a couple of months. Okay. And it's unfortunate, but, but at the end of the day, that's the way it is. You know, there, there are so many avenues that, that you could go through. And, and then the question would even be, even though you have these documents from explanation of benefits, I'm assuming from your insurance, uh, how can you validate them if she's not allowed you to get those medical records through HIPAA? You know, are they, are they then even allowed as evidence? You know, and, and well, we subpoenaed them. We, we subpoenaed her medical records. So yeah, I built, I built a solid story around uh, the medical claims and pharmacy claims from my attorney. She's not, she had no medical knowledge, but I built a story that, you know, he, here's what I laid out for you from a drug pres prescription perspective. Here's what I laid out regarding her pattern of STDs. The interesting thing about the pattern of STDs, she's like, yeah, we're probably not going to bring that up because, you know, she'll sit on the stand, which she was right. She'll like, she'll sit on the stand and tell the judge that you knew about him and you forgave her. Mm. And she was a very effective liar. They all were. Um, but, but that comes with the diagnosis of BPD. Yeah. But we did subpoena the medical records. And so it was getting all of stacks and stacks and stacks of her medical records. that we discovered that, in fact, she does not have an autoimmune disease. She was evaluated by a prominent clinic twice down in Florida. And they found that, no, she doesn't have an autoimmune disease. So it was quite the journey, but, um, but you find your blessings in it and the blessings I found in it, there were a lot of blessings along the way. I'm on the other side of things from a mental health perspective. Now, um, I'm sharing my story. I was encouraged to write the book and share the story because of the fact there are not many books out there about men on the other side of the equation. And I'm looking to give, I'm looking to give back to others with some of the proceeds from the book, primarily looking at former military and a women's abuse center. So I'm looking to do some good with it. Yeah. And, and I think you already are. And, and it's very important. And it's, it's part of our healing process, you know, yeah. to, to be able to do what we do from a religious standpoint. We, at least I believe everything happens for a reason. And if we can look at any situation hard enough, we find some good that, that comes out of anything. It, it may not feel good at the time, but, but eventually we do see that it, that it comes good. So yeah, um, a couple minutes, a couple, couple months ago, somebody told me something that res really resonated with me. And, and that, indeed I turned the story over to God and somebody told me it's his story told through you. Hmm. So July 9th, JD McCabe's birthday, I had been talking to God directly for 14, 15, 16 days saying, what do you want me to do with this? Here's what I think I want to do with this, but this is your story. What do you want me to do with it? Lo and behold, July 9th, my birthday, that's when the first TikTok blew up about the arsenic poisoning. In less than 24 hours, had two and a half million views. That's when it opened up to other, opened up other doors and other platforms like yourself. And it's, it's God's work for sure. Yeah. You got your answer. Yeah, yeah. I did. Well, JD, thank you for, for being with us here today and, and sharing this incredible, this incredible, as, as I mentioned earlier, near unbelievable you know, account of, of what has happened in you and in, in, in your previous marriage. Um, where can, where can our listeners find you? Well, thank you. And again, thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure to chat with you and to get your perspective too on things. Um, so folks can find me on, on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok at the third gift. My website is thirdgift.com. Uh, folks that are interested in purchasing the book, if they're interested in signed copies, they can buy buy it through Ballast Books, B-A-L-L-A-S-T, or Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble. 
It's available in an audio book and an ebook. And the audio book, I narrated that. So I share my I share my story through the audio book. Well, it's, once again, it's good to have you with with us here. And of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at the.brian.com. Uh, all of my social media links are at the bottom of my website. And uh, I would encourage you to go find JD, go read his book, uh, hear his story, uh, because I do believe that that it will empower others to make the stand and say, you know what, something really isn't right here. If anything else, to make a stop and question. Uh, and I think that's so important. And now, uh, not to not to get back to anything, but you could look back now and say, I should have recognized that as something. But now other people hearing your story will stop and think. And so uh, y'all make sure to check out uh, all of JD's social media, uh, find his book, read it. And uh, we once again, I just thank you for being here today and being vulnerable and and sharing your story. I thank you, sir. I appreciate it very much. All right. Uh, once again, you can find me at the.brian.com. All of my social media links are there at the bottom. Of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. Check out all of our podcasts at befranknetwork.com and uh, make sure to follow us on all of our social media uh, as well. All right. It's uh, good to be here and good to hear your story and hopefully our listeners will be encouraged. And so thank you again. Thank you. All right. Goodbye.